Hello, this is Patrick Ridgell with Transamerica, and welcome to another edition of Market Pulse with Transamerica Asset Management Chief Investment Officer, Tom Wald. Hello, Tom. Welcome back. Hello, Patrick. Nice to be back. Tom, quite a bit has been going on in the markets of late, and I guess maybe I'd like to start with a couple of pieces you've just written. The first one is called Banks in the Markets, What Investors Need to Know, and you wrote this immediately following the the rather sudden and unexpected closures of two pretty well-known and highly respected banks, those being Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, which I guess for lack of a better term, fully collapsed mm-hmm. and went and went into mm-hmm. government receivership in mid-March. It's not your usual type of market news now, is it, Tom? Uh, no, no, it's not. And, and Patrick, uh, there, there's an old saying, may you live in interesting times. And the events of these past few weeks have certainly provided some very real testimony that we are now most definitely in some quite interesting times indeed. And interesting does not always mean good, uh, as evidenced by these two bank failures, uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, both of which maintained balance sheet assets well north of $100 billion. Mm -hmm. And this was uh, exacerbated shortly thereafter by what you might call a a near miss over in Europe where Credit Suisse, uh, one of the oldest and I guess – you could say at times in years past, most revered of financial institutions that had to be acquired in what was considered to essentially be a rescue purchase by one of its competitors, UBS Group, a deal which included more than $100 billion in capital and loss guarantees from the Swiss government and Swiss National Bank. So, Patrick, these types of bank failures or near misses, if mm-hmm. you will, are extremely rare events in modern society and even more so for institutions of these sizes. So, so Tom, let me ask the obvious question here. In this mm-hmm. day and mm-hmm. age, how do banks like Silicon Valley Bank and mm. Signature Bank, uh, which, as you said, with, with, as you said, hundreds of billions of dollars in assets, how do they fail? How does that happen? Uh, <laughs> well, in a nutshell, Patrick, they mismanaged their, mis- their mix of assets and liabilities and quickly found themselves in a shortfall between the two and worse at a time when depositors, both individuals and businesses, with accounts at those banks decided to pull their money en masse, creating a full-fledged run on these banks. Now, throughout various points in history, banks have been susceptible to runs on deposits. And when that occurs, they have got to have enough assets to meet those withdrawals and enough liquidity in the composition of those assets to raise the cash mm-hmm. to meet those withdrawals. And in the cases of these two banks, they had neither. And after that became apparent, the downward spiral was pretty quick as in a matter of days. So why did this happen now? Uh, what's so unusual about the current banking environment that caused, as you said, asset liability mismanagement at these banks to the degree that they actually collapsed, closed their doors, and had to be taken over by the government, uh, something most investors today have really never seen before? Great question, Patrick. And probably the best way to summarize it is to say these banks simply owned a lot of bonds, U.S. Treasury bonds, in fact, with long-dated maturities going out upwards of 10 years. Mm -hmm. They bought these bonds, most likely because short-term bond yields at the time were so low, probably close to zero, actually. So they had to buy these longer-term bonds in order to get any sort of measurable yield. Now, the problem with that, Patrick, is that once interest rates start to rise, the prices of longer-term bonds fall a lot more than they do for short-term bonds. 
And when interest rates start to rise in the magnitude they have over the past year or so, as seen in the Fed funds rate, which increased from zero to four and a half percent between February of last year and when these banks collapsed, and the 10-year bond yield, which rose from 1.6% to start of 2022 to more than 4% during that same time frame, the prices of those long-term bonds owned by these banks fell a lot. So the difference in value between what those bonds that these banks owned would be worth at maturity many years out in the future and what they could in real time sell them for in the open markets diverged considerably. Hmm. For example, Patrick, if you bought a 10-year treasury bond the first day of 2022 at a par value of $1,000 and then had to actually sell that bond in early March of this year, you would only be getting about $820. Uh, and thus taking uh, about an 18% loss. Mm. So part of the problem was that these banks were carrying these bonds at par value, or in other words, held the maturity value on their balance sheets. But when they actually had to sell them to meet deposit or withdrawals, that wasn't what they could actually receive for them. In fact, far from it. So that, again, in a nutshell, was their asset liability mismatch and balance sheet shortfall leading to their inability to pay depositors back their money. And once that happens, the government steps in pretty quick and closes the bank. Mm. But Now, Tom, this might seem a, a bit basic to ask, but with those longer-term treasury bonds, and we're talking the U.S. treasury bonds here, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not some lower credit quality corporation or fly-by-night mm-hmm. republic, but the United States government, Creditworthiness mm-hmm. was not an issue, correct? That's right, Patrick. These bonds were money good. The most money good bonds in the world at maturity. Okay. But they were highly sensitive to market pricing changes before mature, based on increasing interest rates. So they simply could not be sold at prices to meet the required amounts of deposit or withdrawals. Right. And I think what has a lot of people shaking their heads is that everyone knew that rates had moved higher and the prices of these bonds had moved lower. So shouldn't someone have seen this coming? You would think so, Patrick. You would certainly think so. And no question, there's plenty of blame to go around here, beginning with the management of these two banks who mismanaged the asset liability composition of those long-term bond portfolios and their deposits. Regulators, also appeared to have missed some signs here. And believe it or not, the banks were actually permitted to carry these bonds at maturity value on their balance sheets, even though they obviously should have known better. Some are also pointing fingers to the Federal Reserve themselves, raising interest rates so far so fast after holding them down so low for so long. Mm-hmm. Many believe something was bound to break given the fastest trajectory of Fed rate hikes in more than half a century and the worst bond price declines in pretty much bond market history. And Patrick, you also have to remember that there was one last wild card that had to play out, and that was the depositors pulling their money in bulk and at record speed as today's technology now allows them to do literally in seconds. These were not like the bank runs of the 1930s you see in old history documentaries showing people lined up for city blocks trying to get inside the banks themselves or or that famous scene in the holiday movie classic, It's a Wonderful Life, when Jimmy Stewart uh, talks the whole town out of pulling all their money. Uh, These depositor runs at Silicon Valley and Tincture were pretty much 30 seconds or so on keyboards, Mm -hmm. mouse pads or cell phones, and then they were out. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, if all that hadn't happened as fast as it did, again, over just a couple of days, perhaps these two banks could have survived. Although I tend to think with balance sheet mismatches as dramatic as they were, it was probably just a matter of time. Now, Tom, in your article, you mentioned, and I'm going to quote you directly here, that swift actions of the Federal Reserve, U.S. Treasury Department, and Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or the FDIC, as being crucial in averting a potentially wider crisis in the financial system. Do you care to elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, Yeah, yes. Uh, Now, of course, the immediate concern after any financial institution's failure, and of course, uh, many of us remember this all too well from 2008 following the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy, is the concerns that can instantly ensue regarding contagion and fears of a systemic crisis throughout the entire banking and financial world, uh, carrying far greater implications for the entire economy in the U.S. and globally, as well as the world equity and credit markets. It's a bit like a kitchen fire. You don't want spreading to other rooms and you have a limited time to contain it. And what specifically were those government actions? So, Patrick, I would really point to two of them. The first news of Silicon Valley's pending collapse started to trickle out on Thursday, March 9th. And by Friday the 10th, the bank was all but finished. And that left investors and bank depositors across the country with a a long and ominous weekend to ponder what they should do next. Then on Sunday, March 12th, federal regulators announced they were also shutting down Signature Bank. And of course, you had markets throughout the world set to open Monday morning. Certainly not an ideal situation by any means. Now, as they directly stepped smack into the line of fire in all this, I would give a lot of credit, pardon the pun, To those three government entities you just mentioned, the Federal Reserve, the FDIC, and the U.S. Treasury Department, for coming together collectively over that weekend and making announcements regarding two separate actions to help avert a further and more wide-ranging crisis. The first was that the FDIC, in completing its resolutions of Silicon Valley and Central Bank, would be fully protecting all depositors of those two banks, both insured and uninsured. So under this scenario, no depositors at either bank would lose money, though stock and bond investors would be subject to losses. This outcome provided safety for depositors while not bailing out the banks themselves. Now, before going any further on this, Patrick, I think it's really important to recognize that this course of action, fully reimbursing not just insured deposits, up to $250,000, which is inherent for all FDIC-insured banks. But in addition to that, uninsured deposits too, as in those not covered by FDIC. And there were a lot of those higher uninsured deposits at these banks. That decision by the U.S. government is a highly controversial one longer term. There are a lot of legitimate arguments, in my opinion, as to whether this new deposit guarantee in place right now for just these two banks covering all money for all depositors is, one, something the government can afford to do on a wider basis, two, fair to other depositors at other banks who might not get the same treatments and terms in the future, and three, a good idea if it does become a more explicit policy across the board, as there are concerns that universal deposit insurance could create a moral hazard 
and lead to excessive risk-taking throughout the financial system. Patrick, these are all legitimate topics of debate longer term in my view. But from a more narrow lens of preventing potential contagion and systemic fears immediately following the Silicon Valley and Sinsure failures, at that critical moment in time, I think it was helpful in the context of preventing a much bigger crisis. And just to put a final ribbon on this topic, any official blanket increase in the FDIC's uh, 250000 deposit insurance limit will probably have to come from specific congressional legislation, uh, which, of course, would be a far bigger undertaking. Okay, so what was the second major action? Now, the second very important action taken immediately following these two bank closures was that the Fed also announced additional funding for eligible depository institutions through the creation of what they have named the Bank Term Funding Program. This new program will offer loans of up to one year in length to banks, savings associations, credit unions, and other eligible depository institutions, allowing for U.S. Treasury bonds, agency debt, and mortgage-backed securities to be pledged as collateral. And the vital significance here, Patrick, in this new program is that banks will now be able to receive up to one-year collateralized loans from the Fed based on that par value or maturity value of their bond portfolios. So the Fed is essentially stepping in here and covering that gap we just talked about between the bank's maturity value and market value on their bond portfolios on the longer-term premise that ultimately these bond portfolios will be money good over the long term. And that could really help other banks to potentially mitigate the types of balance sheet asset liability shortfalls that played such a major role in the Silicon Valley and signature collapses. That does sound pretty important. So with these government actions you just elaborated on, would you say this is now crisis averted with the banks or at least crisis averted in the U.S.? I would probably categorize it more as crisis mitigated, but not necessarily eliminated. We'll probably okay. need at least a bit more time to make that declaration, as there is still a lot to play out with the banks. And first and foremost, pretty much on everyone's mind is whether or not we see another collapse or explicit need for government rescue in the upcoming days, weeks, and months. But I do think the quick actions and collaboration of the Fed, FDIC, and Treasury Department have gone a long way these past few weeks in calming overall depositor angst, which is probably the most important factor in all this. Okay. Now, Tom, one more question on the banks. There's been a lot of conjecture as to whether all of this is setting up as another 2008 mm -hmm. scenario, mm -hmm. similar in risk magnitude to the global financial crisis of that year. How would you assess that comparison? Well, I think it's probably most important to emphasize that unlike the global financial crisis of 2008, the central issue in this turmoil today appears to be, as we mentioned, asset liability mismanagement as opposed to widespread credit deterioration throughout the banking system, as was the case with the toxic uh, mortgage underwriting that led to the global uh, financial crisis back then. So while the risk of asset liability mismatches between deposits and longer-term treasury bond portfolios certainly took its toll in these cases. Systemically speaking, I would view the current banking environment as being in more of a liquidity crisis 
than a credit crisis and thereby, and thereby potentially more effectively addressed through actions such as uh, what was established with the bank term funding program. So okay. while the overall situation in the bank industry and for regional banks in particular remains a fluid one, and as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, there is clearly much to play out in the days, weeks, and months ahead, I would view the recent government actions as likely helping to prevent a greater liquidity crisis and also potentially deterring contagion fears and depositor nervousness. Yeah. Now, Tom, I want to turn to the second piece you wrote this past week entitled Interest Rate Outlook. And in this one, you take a hard look at how the Federal Reserve might be incorporating this whole banking situation along with a lot of other factors in determining where they go from here in regard to further rate hikes or even potential rate cuts between now and year end. Yes. Now, at their March 22nd meeting, the Federal Reserve raised the Fed funds rate by 25 basis points or 0.25% to a target range of 475 to 5%, which was basically in line with market expectations, although there was clearly a growing contingent of investors expecting them to take a pause if for no other reason than to survey uh, the somewhat jittery market environment we've seen since the recent bank closures, as well as the overall ongoing nervousness in the global banking sector. But that's not what happened, as they did decide to continue with another rate hike, and the market, at least for now, uh, seems to have absorbed that pretty well. So given the outcome of this most recent Fed meeting and this latest rate hike, where do you think the Fed goes from here? Patrick, I would say there now appears to be a high probability the Fed reaches a lower bound of 5% on the Fed funds target range by mid-year, inferring one more 25 basis point rate hike in the next couple of meetings, and then holds tight from there. This scenario seems likely from my perspective based on what could be declining rates of core inflation, perhaps toward the 4% range in upcoming months, uh, along with what could be tightening overall financial conditions in the U.S. economy following the Silicon Valley and signature bank failures. I think it could be a close call as to whether the Fed might actually be done now and just hold at the current uh, target range of 4.75 to 5 percent. But all considered, I would lean toward one more rate hike as I think inflation is still very much on their minds. And how do you see the overall banking environment directly playing into the Fed's policy decisions on rates from here on out? I think the recent bank failures combined with the rescue acquisition in Europe of Credit Suisse by uh, UBS will likely result in more stringent credit conditions throughout the global banking system. And I would expect the Fed to take this into account regarding future rate hikes. And even when considering the government government actions we just discussed and their potentially uh, crisis mitigating impacts, the net effects of these recent bank closures are still, in our judgment, prone to result in more constrained credit availability throughout the economy, and thus, and thus uh, less of a need uh, for the Fed to raise rates more than an additional 25 basis points or so uh, from here on out. Now, Tom, one topic we have not talked about yet today, but of course have quite a bit in the past, is recession risk. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What would be your quick summary on that and, and the effects a pending recession could have on Fed policy for the remainder of the year? Well, Patrick, the the irony here is that current economic data has remained pretty solid, particularly pertaining to employment trends and overall economic growth for this first quarter, which appears to be progressing quite well with the Atlanta Fed's uh, GDP tracking estimate presently inferring about 3% annualized growth. 
However, leading economic indicators continue to flash bright red recession warning signals. And this likely supports the prospect of the Fed's tightening cycle concluding in the months ahead. Here we would point to the conference board's leading economic index for February, a series of about 10 economic, uh, consumer, and market data points with a history of turning negative prior to economic downturns. Uh, This index for February displayed uh, worse than a 6% decline uh, versus a year earlier. Uh, And of course, we have a deeply Uh, inverted treasury bond yield curve, uh, currently at more than a 1.25% differential between the three-month and 10-year rates. Simply put, Patrick, neither of these two metrics has fallen to these types of levels over the past half century without a recession following in the upcoming year. So in my judgment, the prospect of a moderate recession beginning by year-end is a strong probability And as that outcome becomes more apparent, I think it also plays into the Fed concluding the tightening cycle in the next few months. Now, Tom, along these lines of a potential recession this year, uh, there now once again seems to be growing market expectations that the Fed will actually begin cutting interest rates sometime in the Mm -hmm. second half of the year. What, Mm -hmm. what What are your thoughts on that? Patrick, I would still view Fed rate cuts in the second half of the year as unlikely even given current market expectations or a pending recession. Now, as you said, the Fed funds futures markets are now once again forecasting rate cuts by the Fed in the second half of the year. However, I'm reluctant to accept that premise in large part based on the likelihood Chair Powell and his colleagues probably remain diligent in their quest to combat inflation even after potentially concluding the current tightening cycle. I say that, Patrick, Because given the magnitude of this inflationary cycle and the degree to which the Fed misjudged its trajectory at the outset, I think even the beginning of a moderate recession later this year would still not be enough to convince the Fed to begin reducing rates by year end. And Tom, I know in the the past you've often talked about wild cards and their Mm -hmm. potential Mm -hmm. impacts on expectations. What is the biggest wild card you see in regard to the overall Fed interest rate scenario that you've just described? Yes, great question, Patrick. I would view upcoming monthly inflation reports as the biggest wild card potentially impacting Fed policy decisions in the months ahead. In looking at past cycles, such as those reaching peak inflation rates uh, back in March 1980 and November 1990, I think you have to recognize that subsequent declines in consumer price trends following peak cycle inflation rates tend not to be linear and can be subject to monthly aberrations along the way. So if we do see some noticeable directional volatility in monthly consumer price index and personal consumption expenditure inflation reports between now and year end, that could cause some apprehension at the Fed and upward pressure on longer term interest rates. And Tom, perhaps we can close out here with an update on your overall outlooks for not only interest rates, but but stock and bond markets as well. Yes, we are maintaining our year-end target on the Fed funds rate at a lower bound of 5% and believe a realistic level on the 10-year Treasury yield uh, to be in a range of 4 to 4.25%, continuing to reflect an inverted yield curve. Uh, We feel bond investors should continue to remain in short to intermediate maturities so to achieve higher yields with less sensitivity 
to interest rate risk. We also continue to really like uh, short to middle of the curve, high yield and investment grade bonds offering some of their highest yields uh, since 2020 and, and 2009, respectively, uh, as we believe the overall credit environment even given the recent bank closures uh, initiating government actions, is still more benign than prior to previous recessions, due in large part to opportunistic refinancings made by companies during the pandemic and uh, aggregate maturity schedules in the corporate bond markets more heavily weighted toward the latter parts of the decade. Also, while we see the equity markets remaining volatile in the months ahead, we are maintaining our year-end S&P 500 price target of 4400 This is based in large part on the markets looking past a moderate recession, recovering in the aftermath of peak inflation, and the conclusion of the Fed's tightening cycle, as well as an improving corporate earnings outlook for calendar year 2024. Okay, so there you have it. That's good stuff, Tom. I want to thank you for covering with us not only our scheduled topic of the Fed's March meeting and its impact on future interest rate expectations, but also the unexpected events in the banking <laughs> sector and, and what that could mean for investors looking forward. Um, I suppose, as you said earlier, we're certainly experiencing interesting times in the markets right now. And, and I'm sure our listeners are greatly appreciative of your insights and perspectives as these recent events and developments continue to play out. And of course, we'll look forward to our next discussion, whatever the markets dictate that might be about. (laughs) Yes, thank you, Patrick. And I'll certainly look forward to that. Investments are subject to market risk, including the loss of principal. Asset classes or investment strategies described may not be suitable for all investors. Past performance does not guarantee future results. The information included in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation for the purchase or sale of any security. This material contains general information only on investment matters. It should not be considered as a comprehensive statement on any matter and should not be relied upon as such. The information does not take into account any investor's investment objectives, particular needs, or financial situation. The value of any investment may fluctuate. This information has been developed by Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated and may incorporate third-party data, text, images, and other content to be deemed reliable. Comments and general market-related projections are based on information available at the time of writing and believed to be accurate, are for informational purposes only, are not intended as individual or specific advice, may not represent the opinions of the entire firm, and may not be relied upon for future investing. Investors are advised to consult with their investment professional about their specific financial needs and goals before making any investment decisions. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused substantial market disruption and dislocation around the world, including the U.S. Economies and financial markets throughout the world are increasingly interconnected. Economic, financial, or political events, trading and tariff arrangements, terrorism, technology and data interruptions, natural disasters, and other circumstances in one or more countries or regions could be highly disruptive to and have profound impacts on global economies or markets. Fixed income investing is subject to credit rate risk, interest rate risk, and inflation risk. Credit risk is the risk that the issuer of a bond won't meet their payments. Inflation risk is the risk that inflation could outpace a bond's interest income. Interest rate risk is the risk that fluctuations in interest rates will affect the price of a bond. Investing in floating rate loans may be subject to greater volatility and increased risks. Equities are subject to market risk, meaning that stock prices in general may decline over short or extended periods of time. Investments in global and or international markets involve risks not associated with U.S. markets, such as currency fluctuations, adverse social and political developments, and the relatively small size and lesser liquidity of some markets. These risks may be greater in emerging markets. Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated is an SEC-registered investment advisor. The funds advised and sponsored by Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated include Transamerica Funds, Transamerica Series Trust, and Delta Shares Exchange Traded Funds. Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated is an indirect, wholly-owned subsidiary of Aegon NV, an international life insurance, pension, and asset management company. 282499.